Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. I want to read to you, this is a very introductory message. I want to really take my time in this first message, and I want to set up a few things, because if we're going to work our way through the book of Revelation, uh, one of the things that intimidates a lot of Christians is like no other book of the Bible, there is more disagreement about, uh, among genuine Christians. I'm not even talking, you know, liberal Christians and that sort of thing, but among genuine Christians, there is more disagreement about the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible for sure. I mean, I just finished there that series on beginnings where we were really focusing in on Genesis 1 and 2. And of course, with any passage of the Bible, you've got, you'll have differences of opinion among Christians. But when I compare, you know, you know Genesis 1 and 2, you've got really, a, a, among scholars, you've got really a general consensus of how it should be read. And among evangelical Christians, you have total agreement on what the main message is, which is that God created it all absolutely. Amen. But when you come to Revelation, it's a totally different thing. And I want to really, I want to take my time and I want us to look at the lens, why I'm going to preach it the way I'm going to preach it and why we as a church understand it the way we understand it. Um, because if you go back home and many of you uh, will even check your phone sometimes during the message while I'm preaching. I mean, in this day and age, uh, I have to be really careful when I'm preaching because I'll have people, I'll say something or quote something or have a stat. And I have people by the end of that service telling me, oh yeah, I looked it up. You were right as if they thought I was making it up. But anyway, I have to, preachers nowadays, we've got to be really careful. And I know some of you are going to access commentaries. You're going to go online and you're going to be looking up and you're going to see I'm preaching something and you're going to, you, you pull out uh, a commentary by someone with a respected name and a godly person and it'll be totally different. And you'll pull out a different commentary and it'll be totally different. And you'll go, what in the world? And that's why so many Christians throw up their hands at the book of Revelation and they say, who can figure this out? And, uh, and so... I want to lay a foundation in this series. I want to tell you all of my assumptions. I'm going to go through uh, four different views, kind of major views that people have for approaching Revelation. And then within each of those views, there's some disagreements, but you're going to see kind of these general tracks, why Christians fall into different places. And I'm going to show you where we are and how we're going to approach the book of Revelation and, and why I'm confident about that. But uh, I'll read you the first three verses here of the book of Revelation because it gives us some really important uh, introduction into the purpose of Revelation and what John was thinking when he wrote it, which is really essential. So John says this in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And the first thing I just want to point out there right from the very start, and I say this all the time whenever I speak on a, you know, any passage that kind of touches on Revelation, is a number of Christians, there's one group of Christians actually with Revelation where it's sort of like Revelation is, they've kind of punted Revelation off. It's sort of this weird book. And, you know, Christians, we, we're going to more focus on like the normal books, Paul and, and the gospels and all this sort of stuff. But the thing I want to just say right from the, from the beginning here of this series is, first of all, just the fact that God gave us this book means we need it. I mean, if it's in the Bible, it's the inspired word of God and the, and the arrogance. And I don't think Christians are trying to be arrogant, but 
But when you think about it, the arrogance of thinking that we can say to the inspired word of God, we don't need that section. That section's weird. We're going to ignore it. It's like, you know, uh, you know, those of you parents with young kids, you know, if you sat down and, and you put out a meal for your little kid and your kid says, you know what, I'm not going to eat this. I'm just going to wait for dessert. And, uh, and obviously you would I mean, pardon, uh, no, you'll, if you want dessert, you'll eat this because they don't know what they need. And the same is true. If God is sovereign and God is God, if he gave us this book in the Bible, then we need it. And it's not up to us to just say, you know, we're just going to ignore that one. It's kind of weird. And we're going to just stick with the other ones. If it's in the book of the, if it's in the Bible, then we absolutely need it. In fact, as we just read there, uh, Revelation is the only book of the Bible that explicitly promises a blessing to those who read and obey it, right? As we see in, in verse three there, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Part of my motivation in preaching this series is because I am personally selfish and I want a blessing. And it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy to the church, right? So, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. And just in case we missed it, in the last chapter, the very end of Revelation, that's, that kind of bookends the whole thing. Jesus says in 22 verse 7, and this one is in red letters. It's, it's physically coming from Jesus' mouth. And he says, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so now I don't want to lift up Revelation above the other books of the Bible. I'm just trying to bring it up for us Christians on par with the other books of the Bible. Um, so I'm not saying that there isn't a blessing for the other, you know, studying and applying the other books of the Bible. Certainly there is. But the book of Revelation is the only one that explicitly states it. Amen. At the beginning and at the end, blessed are you if you read this and if you study it. Okay? And so coming out of that, I have two assumptions. And then we're going to work through various views uh, of Revelation, but I have two assumptions. First of all, my first assumption with the, with the book of Revelation is that the book of Revelation must be understandable to the church at some level. I know there's lots of different interpretations. Like no other book of the Bible, there are many different, very different interpretations by godly people of the book of Revelation. And, uh, and so that's why a lot of Christians throw their hands up. But I just have to believe if it's from God, and if there's a blessing for reading and studying it, I have to believe that at some level, it has to be understandable to us. It can't be just beyond us. It can't be just throw up your hands and give up. At some level, it has to be understandable to us. I, I believe that to the core of my being. Otherwise, I wouldn't preach my way through it. And I, I don't believe otherwise God would have given it to us. But there's a second assumption that goes with that. And this is where the but comes in. And I want to just keep this firmly in mind the entire time we go through this. But we also have to approach Revelation with a lot of humility, okay? A lot of humility. Um, I believe that its primary message and many of the, the primary themes and the things that it's doing are supposed to be discernible for the church. But having said that, I also believe that Revelation is for some of God's various purposes is intentionally cryptic. And there's going to be a bunch of things as we go through this series, you're going to hear me say things like, um, now, I'm not sure about this. And here's what I kind of think the main message of this we can take away from this is, but I'm actually not sure how this is going to work out. We're going to say that a lot in this series. And I think I would be wary of anybody who didn't say that a lot in the book of Revelation, because I think God has intentionally made, even though it's understandable at one level, we're going to hold that intention. I think on another level, Revelation is intentionally cryptic. And I think it's for two reasons. One is, I don't think God wants us to know step-by-step step everything that's going to happen in the future because I don't think that's good for us. 
And secondly, I don't think God wants to give away all of his plans to the devil. And I could, if I had more time in this message, I would go back and show you in Corinthians and in Paul's letters, all the times that Paul talks about the Jesus first coming. And he talks about how it was a mystery. And in Corinthians, at one point, he says it, uh, that God had kept it hidden from Satan and his angels, essentially, because if he hadn't, Satan and his angels wouldn't have crucified Jesus. So I believe Revelation is intentionally cryptic, and yet it has to be understandable to the church. So we're going to walk in that tension. There's going to be some stuff we don't know, but all of it has to be important for the church and understandable at some level, all right? And so now I want you just to stick with me. At the end of this message, I really believe already Jesus has a message to our hearts already today. But before I can get to that message and before I can really start to preach uh, through the book of Revelation, I want us to, we got to lay a foundation as to why I'm going to preach it a certain way and not some of these other many, many ways. In fact, by the way, I just heard a brand new way of interpreting Revelation in between services last night, which I instantly rejected. But still, it was new and it was like, wow, people are always forever coming up with new ways of interpreting the book of Revelation. So let's look at four basic views. There's kind of four, you know, basic lenses, if you will that people put on when they read the book of Revelation. And depending on what lens you put on, you're going to interpret things very differently. And I'll explain some of the weaknesses and strengths of each view and then why we pick the view that we have, all right? And so the first way, if you'll stick with me for just a little bit here, and we'll do a little bit of theological work and we can do a little bit of thinking. But the first view we'll look at of the four is the spiritual or idealist view. And this is the view that, that all of Revelation is sort of like an allegorical poem it's a, it's a symbol of the struggle between good and evil. It's a symbol of the struggle between God's kingdom and the devil's kingdom. Okay? And so again, these people are not heretics for believing this. Many godly men and women over the years have believed this and continue to believe this. And basically, these people take the message of Revelation to be that God is sovereign and in control, and in the end, God wins. By the way, both of those things are 100% true. Those are two of the primary messages of the book of Revelation, that God is in control. We will see that again and again and again through the book of Revelation. It is so encouraging. And we will also see very clearly in the book of Revelation that in the end, God's kingdom will crush the kingdom of Satan. That's also amazing. So these people are absolutely right in these, you know, these kind of primary themes that they take out of the book of Revelation. However, when they turn everything into just a symbol, it's just a symbol, these are not actual events that are going to happen I'll tell you the week, one of the, and again, I, I don't have time. We could preach a whole message into each of these views. And I've got to just kind of generalize things and do them very quickly. But one of the primary weaknesses with this view is that it's not what John says he's doing. And if we look again, right at the very beginning in Revelation 1 verse 1, John tells us what he's doing when he writes this. And he doesn't say that he's writing an allegorical poem of the, of the struggle between good and evil. He writes, he says this, he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So we just have to take John at his words. And uh, a lot of times people who take the, the idealist approach, they talk about genres. They talk about, and again, you can forget all these words, but for those of you who need this, who this is important to you, you can remember these words. I will come back to this a little bit next week. But there's a lot of people right now who are saying, you know, it's apocalyptic literature. 
And in the first century Judaism, there was a lot of this apocalyptic, symbolic, poetic literature. And so they say, if we just compare it to the genre of its time, that's what this is. It's just a symbolic poem, which I get that. And I will talk a little bit about apocalyptic literature, by the way, and how Revelation is different from it in very key ways. Um, But having said that, in the end, we don't figure out what John's trying to do by comparing genres. We, We figure out what John's trying to do by what he just tells us he's trying to do. And he says at the beginning, this is a revelation from Jesus of things that must soon take place. So the lens we take is that revelation, just like John said, is prophesying actual events that will occur. Okay. And so for that reason, we reject the idealist view, not that it's bad and not that there aren't very many, you know, uh, wonderful people and smart people who believe it for other reasons that I don't have time to get into right now. I'll go to a second view now. So that's the idealist view. A second view, uh, and this one is an increasingly common one nowadays, so I wanted to for sure talk about this for just a few minutes, and there are some important things we can learn from this view, and then there's some important things we can learn from why we reject it, but it's the preterist view. And again, I know some of you are just going, wow, these are weird words. You don't have to remember the words, okay? You can absolutely forget about preterism in five minutes from now, okay? But preterist, preterism comes from the, the Latin preter. It just means past. Now, this will blow some of your minds because most of us raised in evangelical homes have been raised. It's just always been obvious, as, you know, as obvious as a fish is in water, that Revelation is prophesying about the end times. But a preterist actually believes that all, or some preterists believe most, But all of the prophecies of Revelation already took place in the past. They took place in the first century. They all came true in 70 AD. Okay, Uh, That's when the Romans uh, destroyed the Jewish temple. Now, some of you will be in shock because you've never heard of something like that. You're like, isn't it obvious to everybody that these prophecies are about the end times? How can they say that these prophecies already came true in the past, that there's no end time future, that when we read here, we're actually reading about things that have already come true. How could someone even believe that? Well, I'll I'll show you why. And actually they make some good points, but then I think there are some real weaknesses with it too, which is why I reject it. But uh, Revelation 1 verse 1, if we go back there, um, preterists point out the word soon. Okay. So uh, one strength of the preterist interpretation is that they agree with us that John was writing about actual events. So they agree with us. This, This can't just all be imagery, symbols, it must be talking about real events that, have ha- that will happen. But they look at that word soon and they say, whoa, 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 John saw these events as happening soon. So they must have happened uh, in his lifetime or very shortly after his lifetime. They must have happened in that generation. And they pointed out not just in Revelation 1 verse 1, but they also pointed out in Revelation 22 verses 6 to 7, which is at the end of the book. And we'll put that one up there as well. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of of the prophecy of this book. So preterists look at that and they say, look, the, 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 the apostle John and the early church saw these things as going to happen very quickly. And so this must all have happened in their generation. Now, again, one of the strengths I want to point out of this view is it agrees that these events are real. But here's a second thing, and this is going to be really important. This is one of the reasons I wanted to bring up preterism that we're going to take with us for this entire series. Preterists also make a really good point 
that many evangelicals have missed for a long, long time. And that is that the book of Revelation actually had to have applied to the first people who heard it. I mean, doesn't that have to be true? I mean, if the book of Revelation is just about end time prophecy, then it didn't even apply to those Christians living in the first century. And it didn't apply to any Christian that's ever lived, including maybe us. If we don't end up living till the the return of Jesus, then it doesn't really apply to us. It only applies to that group of Christians who are going to live right in the end times. And the preterists say, and I have to agree with them, that nowhere else in the Bible would we ever take that. We believe strongly that the Bible is for us today. It's inspired for all time, but it always had to have meant something to the original hearers. That's who it was written to. And so the preterists are right to emphasize that. And we want to hold that intention as we go throughout the book of Revelation. However, we're going to understand the book of Revelation It has to have meant something to the original audience, and it has to be applicable to us today, not just in the time of the end right before Jesus returns. Does that make sense? We're going to have to hold that tightly. Now, you might say, well, maybe preterists are right. Like, how do you know it does have a future aspect? Well, and the first thing I'm going to point out is right here. So I like that they point out the word soon, but I want you to notice in verse 7 there, one of the things that Jesus says is going to happen soon. He says, and behold, I am coming soon. Now, did that happen in the first century? Some of you are, it didn't happen. If it did happen, we're in trouble. Okay. Now you say, well, what would a preterist? Because there's lots of intelligent people that are preterists now. Lots of, you'll find lots of commentaries. And some of you are during this series, you're going to look up stuff online and it's going to have all these interpretations of how this happened in the past and all this sort of stuff. And you're going to, that's, pre, that's a preterist interpretation. Again, not heresy. It's not going to lead you to the devil. Nothing like that. Okay. But you say, how do very smart, godly people understand that to have, like, how can they believe that? And here's what a preterist says. They say that the prophecies of Jesus return in the New Testament were symbolic. That Jesus returned in the clouds, like it says in Matthew 24, when the Romans judged Jerusalem. And you say, how in the world? They also believe that the new Jerusalem, the city Jerusalem came down to earth, that that's symbolic and that that has happened now because the church is full of the Holy Spirit and the church is on the earth. Now, again, if the new Jerusalem is here already, that is depressing news to me. Very depressing news. Okay. So uh, you say, well, what, like that almost sounds like heresy. Well, there's full preterism and then there's partial preterism. I'm going to leave this right away, but I'm just, we're, we're just discerning things. Partial preterists, a bunch of, you know, kind of more evangelically minded people have kind of come into preterism now and they're sort of partial preterists. And what they say is, okay, okay, you're right. Obviously Jesus hasn't come back yet. Whew. Okay. <laughs> Obviously the new heaven, the new earth hasn't come down to earth yet. So they say, okay, those two big things are in the future. Everything else in Revelation, Matthew 24 happened in the past. And here's the weaknesses I see with that. Okay. Uh, the weaknesses I see with that. Well, first of all, as I just said, obviously, uh, Jesus hasn't returned yet. The second uh, thing problem I have with it is it's very inconsistent. Basically uh, a preterist, if they have to say, well, these two things are in the future and these things are in the past, they'd arbitrarily choose it. They just, it just, that's what works for their theology. We'll put this in the future. We'll put this in the past. And then it kind of works nicely for them. It's inconsistent. And, uh, and then the last reason why I reject preterism, actually, there's a number of others. I've written a whole paper for those of you who are curious. I've got many reasons why I reject preterism, including it does some, it really twists the Bible's doctrine about the nation of Israel and the place of Israel in the end times. But 
A last reason why I reject preterism is because none of the main events of Revelation or Matthew 24 happened in the first century. You, and I could go through. That could be a whole message where I went through Matthew 24 and showed you how none of those things have happened yet. Okay? So that's why I reject preterism. But now that I've brought that up, I want to talk about two extremes and how we're going to have to walk this in this series. So on the one hand, preterists have pointed out that everything in Revelation must be applicable to the original audience and to all Christians throughout time. We've got to hold that in tension. On the other hand, we have to remember that a lot of this also has some kind of future fulfillment because obviously Jesus isn't back yet. So we're going to walk this tension of Revelation has this future aspect to it, but also all of it is applicable to us today. We're going to try to hold that intention. All right. The last two. Uh, historicists. I'm not going to spend much time on this one. So we've looked at idealists. We've looked at preterists, which is it all came true in the first century. A historicist. I'm not going to talk about this very long because I doubt any of you is a historicist. This is more a big one in the past. Um, but these are people who think that the book of Revelation basically talks about seven ages of church history, that the seven churches represent seven ages, and then Revelation marches through these different ages of the church. Uh, very few people hold to this anymore. There's lots of reasons why not. One of the biggest reasons is just it's obsessed with the Catholic Church being the Antichrist. And so you'll, you'll go on YouTube and you'll go on very places, various places, and there's still people that are really obsessed with that. But a lot of that is, is in the historicist approach. And there are many reasons to reject this, including the fact that, that you can't find any of these events. Historicists, there's about a thousand different historicist interpretations. Because what does, you know, Revelation 8 verse 8 talks about a mountain being thrown into the sea. A historicist goes and looks at that, and one historicist says, well, that's when Pope whatever was thrown down. Another one says, no, 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 it's when Pope this one or whatever did this. And they argue about each one. They make them all symbolic and try to tie them to events in history that haven't actually occurred. So we reject the historicist one. That one's a little easier to reject. And then the last major view is what is known as the futurist view, which is where most evangelical Christians are brought up in this view. And I would lump us with this view cautiously with one hand firmly in the past, this tension that there is certainly an end time future aspect to, to Revelation, but it has to be applicable at all times to church history. So we got to hold that intention. So I would call myself a very cautious uh, futurist, okay? And then within this, and, and, and then this is where I'm just going to end this sort of teaching time, and then we'll start to look at what the main, one of the main themes of Revelation is. Within futurism, there's two basic kinds of futurists. And again, I, I want to really emphasize very godly, lovely people on both sides. But one kind of futurist is the one that sees all of Revelation's prophecies as happening in the end times, but the church is rescued out of that tribulation. And then the other kind is the one that we are firmly a part of, which is, believes that the, there's a lot of end time prophecy in the book of Revelation, but the church goes through that time of tribulation. Okay? Okay, very important. Those are two very different ways of viewing the book of Revelation. Now, um, obviously, the pre-tribulation rapture, those are the people who view Rev Revelation as these are future prophecies, but the church will be... Um, will be uh, rescued. And again, I just want to say this. Millions of wonderful Christians believe this. Millions of wonderful Christians. Millions of intelligent, wonderful Christians believe this. And some people in every one of these services this weekend believe this. And I still even want you pre-tribbers to give the Christmas offering next week. So I'm just telling you, I love you all very much. 
You can laugh at that. I'm, I'm, I'm joking around, but I do want you to give. But anyway, that's a whole different thing. Okay? So you say, well, you know, why do you reject the church out of the tribulation reading of, of the book of Revelation? Well, first of all, the, the book of Revelation nowhere talks about the rapture. And uh, I'm not going to offer a money prize or anything. I think that'd be stupid, especially in a church. But, but uh, I would challenge any of you to find, I've, to find the rapture in here and then show it to me. I look forward to it. Okay? If you can do that, I would love to find it. It's actually not in the book. But there's a way bigger reason why I reject uh, the escape, pre-tribulation, rapture view of the book of Revelation. And the reason is, even though many godly, wonderful people believe it, and it's not heresy, it's not leading to the devil, none of that. But the reason I reject it is, immediately you lose one of the biggest messages of the, of, of the book of Revelation. And you also violate this principle that I've been talking about. Remember, and I'm going to show you I'm going to show you this message in Revelation, but before I get there, I just, I just thought of something else. Remember I'm saying that to properly interpret Revelation, we have to have one hand in the future, or one foot, and one foot, it has to apply to the church in the first century and the church today. If the church is rescued from tribulation, then the vast majority of the book of Revelation applies to no Christians except one tiny group that's left behind. Do, do you, does that make sense to you? The pre-tribulation teachers... The wonderful men that they are and women that they are, many of them, they, they teach that the church is raptured after chapter 4, even though you can't find it in chapter 4, chapter 5, but they teach that the church is raptured after chapter 4. If that's true, that means chapters 5 through 19 have no application to the church. That's the biggest chunk of Revelation, have no application to the church from the first century all the way to the last little group of people that are left behind. It has no application to the church ever. Which I think violates the way we read the entire Bible, which is it always had to have a message for the people who are reading it. If the church is rescued, why do we have all these chapters? Then all they are are fascinating, sort of titillating details about something we're not even going to experience. So I believe it violates a number of really important, uh, you know, biblical principles. But the bigger one then is that you miss the message of Revelation, which is, I'm going to tell you one of the main messages, and it's so relevant to us today. And that is, remain faithful to the Lord Jesus and persevere through suffering. That is one of the primary messages of the book of Revelation, and that is why it is incredibly relevant today and has been relevant through all of church history. Every moment of church history, the book of Revelation has been relevant because it preaches this message, no matter how bad the pressure gets. And even if it's not persecution, no matter what kind of suffering you're going through in your life, remain loyal and faithful to the Lord Jesus and persevere through suffering. That's the message of Revelation. Now let me just, I know we're in this first message, I'm just going to take a quick skim and throw, show you a couple of passages in Revelation so you can see that theme. Revelation chapter 12, and I'm looking forward to preaching that message on that chapter. It's a wonderful chapter, but it says this in verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And they have conquered him by three things. Then I want you to notice how we the saints conquer the devil. Okay, how do we conquer him? Three things. One is by the blood of the lamb. Amen to that. By the blood of Jesus. Number two, by the word of their testimony. Now that's powerful too. And I'm going I'm to preach this all again when I get to chapter 12. But you just can't miss some of this gold 
The word of their testimony, how do believers overcome the devil? I'll tell you one of the ways we do it is we don't stop speaking the truth no matter how bad we're pressured. We don't stop. Now, we don't do it in stupid ways. We do it in loving ways and discerning wise ways. But by the word of their testimony, the way we overcome the devil is we don't stop telling the truth. No matter how bad the darkness gets and tries to squelch us out by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, then one more thing. They love not their lives even unto death. The way we beat the devil is by not trying to save our lives, but by being willing to give our lives. And you would think, boy, when a Christian dies, that means the devil's won. But this is the upside down thinking of the kingdom of God, which is when a Christian dies for the Lord or when a Christian lives in such a way that they're willing to die for the Lord, that's exactly that when they're beating the devil, not when they're losing. So winning, having victory over the devil is not about getting rescued out of suffering. It's about overcoming in the suffering and remaining loyal to Jesus. This is everywhere in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13, I'll show you one more, and then we'll go back to chapter 1, and I'll show you the, John's introduction is absolutely powerful. But Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 to 10, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, again, I love these passages of the Bible that you never see on little plaques in people's entryways. You know, you, you go and visit your friend and you come in and there the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Oh, hey, how's it going, right? Um, I mean, that's a sobering passage to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Um, this, is, this is going to happen. Not, not, oh, and God loves the saints too much so he's going to take them out so they don't get suffered. No, no, no. Make war on the saints and conquer them. And I want you to notice here, and this is throughout the book of Revelation, the sovereignty of God. Notice that the beast has to be allowed. It was allowed. Nowhere in Revelation do we have this picture of God wringing his hands. Oh, I can't believe what the beast is doing. Oh, the devil is being so bad. And as if he's not strong enough to stop it. The reason the beast is conquering and trampling on us, the saints, is because God has allowed it in his sovereignty. And he says, but you have this much time. Revelation says the beast gets this much time, not a day less and not a day more. You have this amount of time. And we'll look at some of God's purposes in all of that. But it's not out of God's control. And I mean, we see this around the world right now. The idea that the church gets rescued out of tribulation is, is something you can only believe in a place like, really like North America. Because if you go to places like China, do they have a theology of being rescued before they're persecuted? In Muslim countries, do converts to Christianity who often lose their lives and have horrible things done to them and their families? Do they have a theology of God's going to rescue me before I suffer? No. Is God going to rescue the church? Does God love us too much? He does love us. He also loved his son so much that he allowed him to die for us. And so if we go back to, well, let me just finish this passage because there's more here, but verse nine, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. In other words, if God's, God's got a plan for your life and God's got a plan for the world, if part of the plan for your life is this one's going to suffer for me, then that's actually just what's going to happen. And you can pray all you like, oh, Jesus, I don't want to go to jail. But if your name is on the list of those who will go to jail for Jesus, then your name's on the list. And if anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Now, look at this. This is the message of revelation, not escape, but faithfulness. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That is the message of Revelation.
And if we go back to chapter one, I want to show you this in the introduction. Revelation one, verse nine. I want you to notice how John introduces himself to these churches. I, John, your brother and partner in what? I, John, your brother and partner in escape? No. Your brother and partner in being delivered from all pain? No. Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John, this is actually part of John's identity as a Christian is that we're partners. Do you know that's part of what it means to be part of the church? We just haven't experienced much of it in North America. But around the world, there's a fellowship that comes from I'm suffering for my faith and you're suffering for your faith. And there's a fellowship not only with Jesus, but with each other that is precious, that is shared by believers who have walked through fire together. Your brother and your partner in tribulation. Part of being a Christian is we become part of the family of shared suffering for the name of Jesus. One of the things I've seen is this shift of mentality in the modern Western church from the early church. In the early church, I want you to notice there's a very, it's subtle, but it makes a huge difference. The view of the early church of the relationship between Jesus and me and suffering and the view of the modern church of the relationship between Jesus and me and suffering, totally different. Here's how the early church viewed the relationship between Jesus and me and suffering. The early church viewed it this way. Jesus suffered and he's my leader. Therefore, I should also expect to suffer. That's how they viewed it. If Jesus, who's greater than me, would suffer, obviously, why would I not expect to suffer? Here's how the modern Western church has come to view the relationship between Jesus and me and suffering. The modern Western church views it this way. Jesus suffered so that I don't have to. Have you ever heard that theology? Jesus suffered so that I don't have to. Do you see how different those are? By the way, can I, I should have put this on the PowerPoint, but I didn't think about it till too late. Can I show you a verse here? John chapter 15, verse 20. Which of those theologies do you think is right? Let me read it to you in Jesus' words. John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. This is Jesus. This is in red letters. Okay, you can write this down. Look it up. I don't have it on the PowerPoint, but I got it right here. If you got your phone here, you can look it up. I'm not making this up. Jesus said this to his disciples. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's what Jesus said. A servant is not greater than the master. John 15, verse 20. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. The early church had it right. Their view of suffering was Jesus suffered. I should expect to suffer. Now, the reason I think this is so important, first of all, when you realize that, then the book of Revelation has some real things to say to you. Has some real things to say to you. But you know what? This doesn't just apply to persecution. This applies to any suffering, relational suffering, emotional suffering, health suffering, every kind of suffering we carry. I see too many Christians in the, in, in the Western church if they're, if they're suffering and they can't figure out why, it's always why, 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 why. And I get that. It's not bad to call out why when we're in pain. But there's this obsession with why would I have to go through this? Why? It doesn't make any sense. And then we go through something and I see Christians get hard and bitter to God. Rather than going through life and understanding, actually, Jesus went through horrific suffering. 
I should also expect that I'm going to go through some suffering that I can't understand, and I'm going to remain loyal to Jesus in the midst of it, and I'm going to love him anyway. There is tremendous reward for those who do that. You know, a lot of Christians, I want to do something great for God. You want to know one of the greatest things you can do for God? A lot of Christians will never have the opportunity to do something great in human terms for God. You know, millions of Christians just live in poverty and persecution. They'll never do anything great in human terms for God. You want to know one of the greatest things you can do for God according to the book of Revelation? Just stay faithful to Jesus when you suffer. When you suffer, instead of getting mad at God, instead of getting bitter, say to Jesus, I worship you in the midst of this, and you have just done one of the greatest things you can ever do. There is tremendous reward for you in heaven. Remain faithful and loyal to the Lord Jesus in suffering. If you're in pain and wondering, where's God in this? You're closer to God in your suffering than you've ever been before. Philippians 3, 8 to 11. This is all over the New Testament. Paul says this, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share. Look at that. Share in his sufferings. Paul's like, I want to share with Jesus in suffering. Now, Paul didn't get nailed to a cross. He's not talking about the exact same sufferings Jesus suffered. He's just talking about suffering in general. When we suffer, if we suffer for Jesus, if we suffer well, if we suffer in his name by loving him and adoring him in the midst of our suffering, then we are sharing in his sufferings. And there's a fellowship we can know with him that we can't know any other way. Not just Paul, 1 Peter 4.13. But I rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. There are, there are elements of receiving comfort from Christ that you can only receive when you're in pain. It's only when you've been rejected, when you've been trampled, when you've been overlooked, when you've been whatever it is that you've gone through, when you're in the hospital on chemo or whatever it is, there are, there are moments in that where you are sharing in Christ's suffering. You say to God, I trust you anyway. There are moments then when you can receive comfort from him like you can't at any other time. And finally, I think of Romans 8, 16 to 17. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, I love what this passage, Christians love this passage and so do I. It's all about your identity in Christ. Amen. I love identity in Christ. Oh, if you're a, if you're a guy here today, you're a, you're a son of God in Jesus Christ. And if you're a woman here today, you are a daughter of, of God in, in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. But do you know that what that identity includes? Most identity in Christ, people who really love that truth, rarely go on to the rest of this passage. And I want you to notice what the rest of this passage says about our identity in Christ. It includes suffering. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Amen. I love that. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Did you know that part of your identity as a son of God in Jesus Christ and as a daughter of God in Jesus Christ is that part of your identity is that you get to share your sufferings with Jesus. He's not going to rescue. There's no rescue for the church coming where the church gets plucked out of suffering. And there's no, you know, God answers our prayers and he is so generous and good, but he's not going to rescue you as an individual from all the suffering you're going to go through in your life. But part of your identity as a daughter in Christ, as a son in Christ, is you get to share your sufferings with him. That's part of your identity, provided you suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him him. 
Well, three ways. I'll finish with this, that revelation gives us hope in the midst of our suffering then. Then we'll close this message for today. Number one, in the moment, we are not alone. You are closer to Jesus than you've ever been before when you're in suffering. Reach out to him, but also to each other. John said, I'm your brother and partner in a tribulation. Open your heart up to other believers in the church. Why would you, why would you hold yourself back? Some people are afraid of being embarrassed. I don't want to share my sufferings. I'm embarrassed about this or I'm embarrassed about that. If you're embarrassed about it, then you don't get to share with other people in, your, in, in the sufferings. That's what we do as a body. We share in our suffering with Jesus and we share in our sufferings with each other. And in that there is a fellowship and a strength that is powerful. And Revelation talks about your brother and partner and sister in tribulation. That's what we are together. Secondly, in the moment, God is sovereign. Whatever that thing is that's going on in your life, it might be so terrible. You might not be able to explain the why, but you can know this. God's not shaking his hands in heaven going, oops, I lost track of you for a second there. And that's why this bad thing happened. No, he absolutely knew the whole thing from the beginning to the end. And that doesn't change the fact that painful things have happened to you, but it does say this, that in those painful things, he has always been in control. Things are not out of control. And lastly, our hope is that in the future, Jesus is coming back. This life is so short. It's so short. Right here in chapter one, John starts us off on the right foot. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is not an allegorical poem. We're going to physically see him, and it could happen in our lifetime. It really could. We're closer now than ever before. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I want you just to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And maybe you're going through something right now. And I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe you're being persecuted for your faith at work or in your family. But maybe it's something not related to your faith. Maybe you're just suffering. There is nothing more powerful than saying to Jesus, I worship you in the midst of this. And letting go of control. You can't make it stop. He's the one who's sovereign. Letting go and saying, Jesus, I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm going to trust you no matter what. Lord Jesus, we just come to you as a church. And Revelation speaks powerfully to us, Lord. We are partners and brothers and sisters together in tribulation. And Lord, as our culture, as we go through this series, our culture is increasingly putting pressure on us to compromise. As a church, Lord, I view success. It's not just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I view success as us getting closer and closer and closer. That as the pressure goes up, we're going to know this fellowship together of being mocked together, of being discriminated against together. And we're going to know you in precious new ways as we suffer together. In your precious name we pray. Amen.